Approach pain relief from the ground up with Curex. Curex makes highly customizable over-the-counter insoles thanks to their dynamic arch technology, which provides different support for different arch types. They were developed by German scientists for the specific foot movements of various activities delivering the right support and cushion where it's needed the most. Curex makes the largest selection of activity-specific insoles for running, hiking, golfing, biking, soccer, tennis, or solely for walking and everyday wear. That's the Curex difference, and it can make a difference for your patients. For a free sample, email curexinside at curex.us. That's C-U-R-R-E-X inside at curex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Dr. Jason Benacek's work is focused on helping clinicians help patients. And today he's joining me to talk about the art and the science of quality clinical practice in musculoskeletal rehabilitation, where clinical practice guidelines fit in, why we've got to get better at listening to patients, and what he would do as boss of the world for a day. As a physical therapist, clinical research scientist at Brooks Rehabilitation and assistant professor at the University of Florida, Dr. Benacek really understands the challenges of applying research to practice, and that's why he's here offering practical solutions. Jason, welcome to JOSPT Insights, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for the opportunity, Claire. Uh, I know in in Jacksonville and Gainesville, we're uh, we're really excited about the Insights podcast. We've been listening, or I personally have been listening over the past um, past year or so. So I'm, I'm actually excited to talk with you about a very interesting topic. That's fantastic, and we're always grateful for positive feedback. So thank you, and that was completely unpaid, unsolicited feedback. So the the best kind of feedback. Now, Jason, today we're talking about that age old challenge of implementing quality research into quality practice, which is the tagline of the JOSPT Insights podcast. Let me start with an easy question for you: How would you define quality musculoskeletal rehabilitation practice today? You know, I, I kind of I kind of think back to how we train our DPT students at the University of Florida. I'm in the evidence-based practice curriculum, and my first interaction with those students is actually during the first semester. You know, what we really try to try to emphasize and, and get this point across to students is it really goes back to what David Sackett, the late David Sackett, talked about when we talked about evidence-based practice. You know, the, the three main pillars. Um, one of them being research evidence, and, and I do stress to the students, it seems like we place a greater amount of emphasis on the research evidence because that's really what we're really intending to do in evidence-based practice class. But we, we also emphasize and we, we want to make sure they don't miss the other two pillars that are very important, one being clinical expertise um, that they will eventually develop when they become practitioners and then something that is often ignored, and that's really the third pillar of patient values and expectations. You're probably familiar with the recent paper by Yvonne Lin and colleagues, 2020, I think it was in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and they basically asked that same question. What does best practice care for musculoskeletal pain look like? And they used recent clinical practice guidelines, and they came up with 11 recommendations. 
and I'm not going to mention all the recommendations. It's a great paper. I think you should, um, the audience should take a look at it. We can link to it in the show notes. So if folks check out the show notes, they'll find the link. Great paper. And like I said, you know, if you look at the 11 recommendations, the number one recommendation is care should be patient-centered. And I think that patient-centered itself, that's kind of one of the new buzzwords over the past few years. But if you really look at what patient-centered care is, the importance of effective communication. And going back to your original question, Claire, what does it look like? I think we need to take advantage and utilize all three of those pillars. But I think as a profession, we probably need to do a better job of teaching our students how to effectively communicate with patients. That's great. And I love that you bring up communication because communication can take on many different forms. It might be the verbal communication in the face-to-face consult or the digital consult now that we're in a space where we're sort of embracing much more digital technology in our musculoskeletal practice, but it can also be the written information that you might share with patients or we see people accessing infographics. There's, I think folks are much more familiar with patients now coming to see them having consulted Dr. Google. I think people have a lot more options of places where they can go to find information. So it's that, that sort of richness of the conversation, all of the dynamics of that and managing the knowledge and skills that you bring as a, as a clinician with the knowledge and skills and experience and values and preferences that the patient is bringing as well. Yeah. And I think, Claire, we would be naive to think that patients don't come in, you know, patients are coming in now more informed. Patients are definitely more informed now than they were even 10 years ago. You know, I think that could make our job easier, but it could also make our job more difficult. But I think sometimes the common notion is that patients are coming in and they want us as providers to make all the decisions. And I think I think there's some truth to that. You know, some patients do want to kind of, you know, put the ball in the clinician's court and let him or her make the decisions. I think there is a significant portion of patients that that do want to be involved in their decisions, their healthcare decisions. And when you look at the topic of shared decision making, a lot of shared decision making work has been really done with with health conditions that are associated with a high degree of risk, like surgery or medications, you know, opioids come to mind. In the grand scheme of things, the interventions provided by us as physical therapists for the most part most of the interventions that we can provide as physical therapists are all associated with probably a low level of risk. So some folks think that, you know, shared decision-making, there's really, there, there may not be a place for that in physical therapy decision-making, but I think if we kind of put our collective minds together, um, that could be one potential way where we do engage our, our patients on a, on a higher level, try to go to the extra mile to incorporate them in some of the decisions that are being made. Now, I want to pick up, you mentioned evidence-based practice and the evidence-based practice model that we're all so familiar with from Professor David Sackett and his colleagues. And that was the first time it appeared in the literature was back in the early 90s. Now, evidence-based practice, I think we're all kind of, we're all trying to work in this paradigm and juggle the realities of, of clinical practice with 
the best evidence, the best research evidence. And clinical, I want to speak a little bit about clinical practice guidelines and position statements and consensus statements. And we're seeing more and more of these now and other sorts of similar summary documents. And they're supposed to help clinicians help patients. They're kind of aggregating and synthesizing the evidence. And I think we're starting from a position that if you can summarize this best practice approach, so ideally pulling the best research together with judging the certainty or the trustworthiness of that evidence. It's kind of that one-stop shop resource for where folks can go when they're managing an ankle sprain or they're managing neck pain or whatever whatever it is. And they're supposed to save the clinician the frankly onerous work of wading through evidence. But we know that many clinicians or some clinicians at least don't use or they don't follow clinical practice guidelines. Why do you think that is, Jason? So, you know, this is, um, I think, a topic that's very near and dear to, you know, to me. We recently completed um, an implementation-based study really, really looking at this very question. Um, And, and, you know, I I guess I'll respond to this, you know, one way based on my initial thoughts and then another way more ground in a a methodological or a research-based approach. One of the real challenges and one of the real barriers, one of the most common barriers that we get from clinicians and that other, other research has consistently stated is clinicians, it, it always comes back to lack of time. And, you know, whether that's true or not, that's, that's a lot of times clinicians perceived, one of their main perceived barriers. I think, I think as, as educators, as, as clinicians that, you know, are involved with research that you know, aim to implement new clinical practice paradigms in in a system or a clinic. I think part of our role is to make it very clear how this this process can be efficient if it's if it's if it's tailored and laid out the right way. It's not just clinical practice guidelines because they often you know the term guidelines they're not meant to be viewed as a linear process or. I hate to use the term, but I know everybody else likes to use it, the cookbook approach. It kind of serves as the scaffold, right, to to initiate the clinical decision-making process. And the key is initial, right, how the initial clinical decision-making process begins. I think if we step back and really look at the guidelines that are published, and again, I know guidelines have been published in a lot of different areas and for a lot of different disciplines, this response is really focused on musculoskeletal pain and physical therapy in particular. The guidelines that are out there are, are primarily based on evidence and expert opinion with these physical therapy-based guidelines. Uh, we, we don't really know how effective they are in terms of changing and shifting patient outcomes for beneficial changes. If you look at the literature in this area, I think the one thing that is fairly consistent is that clinician or professional behaviors can be changed. So whether that's clinicians' attitudes, beliefs, knowledge, documentation, utilization of guidelines, that can be changed. But where it's really debatable is, do they beneficially change the outcomes of patients? And then if they don't, the second challenge is, is it the guideline itself? Is it the implementation process? Or is it something else? 
And we'll get to the something else. First, what I'd like to do is if you'll allow me to ask you, how do we nurture creative and inclusive clinical reasoning and shared decision-making? And you mentioned shared decision-making off the top, but how do we nurture this process to ensure that patients' needs remain at the centre of musculoskeletal rehab practice? I guess what I'm asking is, how do we effectively balance the art and the science of clinical practice? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Some degree of standardization is definitely needed for a variety of reasons. One, it'll allow us to demonstrate value of what we do as physical therapists. And a, a key example is patient outcome measures, right? Some things we need to do the same way for every patient. That's not a cookbook approach, but for some things we do need to do them the same way. So there is some, some good to standardization. It will also allow us to decrease some of the unwarranted variability that we see in practice. Jason, would that be, so if we're talking about a standard, the things that we need to do the same way, is that more on the assessment side or are you talking about some treatments? I'm wondering if you can give us a concrete example there. Yeah. Yeah. So the concrete example would really be using, let's say, the Oswestry Disability Index for all patients with low back pain. Now, I know there's there's some limitations to using it, but Using it for every patient will then allow us to talk about what we do as a clinic, as a system, okay, and then as an actual individual clinician. I think using the assessment techniques, okay, and patient outcome reported, patient reported outcome measures in particular are probably the best example of standardization. I will also go back, Claire, to referencing the clinical practice guidelines. And I know I also mentioned some of the, the issues that can come about implementing them in practice. But, you know, I'm pretty confident on the process of how those guidelines were developed, especially the ones that are published in JOSPT. So I do think it provides us with the best available evidence at the time of development and does give us a place to start in terms of assessment, intervention, and recommended outcomes. I know it's difficult, right? We shouldn't be doing the same intervention for every patient with low back pain. But that also lies with what I was kind of getting back earlier, right? They are just the scaffold. Tailoring interventions for individual patients after, let's say, they fit a particular classification, and I'm just using that terminology because of the um, low back pain guidelines, for example, you know, how we tailor that intervention, how we deliver it to a given patient, we're, we're using the guidelines as a scaffold, but the tailoring is where the individual delivery components come from. And that's where we need to become better communicators with our patients, know more about them, and how we deliver the same intervention to patient A or B may be completely different based on some of their different characteristics and their individual profiles. And that's definitely the art part of the clinical practice that we're talking about. And the science would be the choosing the initial, using that initial scaffold. Now, your research focuses on studying how to successfully implement research into practice. Why do you think so many studies that look good in the the published journal article, they fall over when we try to implement them in a rehab program or when we try to implement it in real world practice? Why do you think that is, Jason? The two areas where I probably have the most experience in, in this is with psychologically informed practice. Um, in particular for patients with low back pain and and trying to implement some of those principles, a lot of those principles in clinical practice. And then the second would be our recent project with the um, neck and low back pain clinical practice guidelines. And, you know, Claire, this has always been 
a real struggle. And it, and it's not kind of a get out of jail free card, but I, but I think there is a lot of truth to what I'm about to say. I think when we talk about cultures, right, the culture of a system, the culture of a clinic, you could even say the culture of an individual clinician, they, they could all be totally different. So the way that we think about implementing, let's say, clinical practice guidelines in one health system, it might work for that system if it's shown to be effective. It may not work for a different system. And I would probably venture and go far as to say it probably won't work in that system. The same would be true for individual clinics, because when you think about it, right, we have over 40 outpatient clinics in our system. And I will tell you that each of them have their own culture, right? The folks that work there, how they do things, how the front desk is set up, it, it's, it's a unique culture. And it's not that it's a bad thing. We, we kind of promote that. But those present other potential barriers because one clinic is not the same as the other. The other analogy I'll give related to the individual clinician, and I have to, I have to kind of um, reference Dr. Delito on this because him and I are really big baseball fans and we both root strongly for the New York Yankees. And, and his analogy was, was always the baseball card. And those of you that are familiar with baseball cards, you know, on the front of the card, you'd have the picture of the player and on the back, you'd have their stats. I might be naive, but I know when I was a clinician, I was really interested in the outcomes that I generated from the patients that I saw. And one way that we could kind of do this, set this up, is that every patient or every clinician, I'm sorry, kind of has their own stats. And their stats might be their outcomes for a given patient population. You know, and that patient population could be based on body region. It could be based on specific diagnosis. I'm sure you heard that, Claire. That's one of the benefits of living in Florida in the summer with those um, afternoon thunderstorms. So sorry about that. No worries. This is the great example of real world, the real world research not translating to the real world clinical practice. We're living it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think the individuality of the, of the system, the clinic, and and the individual clinician themselves. You know, that that's going back to your original question: why it doesn't work. You know, I know we always talk about generalizability, but I think even in the perfect world, generalizability is very difficult when it comes to implementation. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is that folks will will know that in research, there's always that trade-off between, you know, you've got to have the inclusion and exclusion or the selection criteria to narrow the population so that you can try to be sure that what you're measuring is is a true effective intervention. But the trade-off with that is then you limiting how much you can generalise those results to the typical patient population. And I think quite often we see problems with a randomized control trial having a very selected patient population. And you might look at that randomized control trial and, and think, well, hang on a minute. I don't ever see patients aged in their 30s and 40s with low back pain. I'm always seeing people who are aged in their 50s and 60s with low back pain. And they've also got diabetes or heart disease or other other coexisting conditions that were just not present in this in this population that was studied in the trial that I'm looking at. So how much can I really take from this research. Yeah, those are all good points. And, you know, I think that's, again, I think that's one of the challenges with translation, right? We, we all like to talk about translation um, and hopefully we're, we're using the research that's published in the journals. But as we all know, and I think as we're 
you know, finding out even more with some of these really good, strong quality studies coming out, you know, implementation is tough. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I reckon is a problem is that researchers, and we're both researchers, so we can both put our hands up as culprits here. We do not report the treatments or the interventions in our clinical trials very well at all and in, in sufficient detail to really let somebody take whatever that treatment was in a, in a study and implement it for sure in their clinical practice. And I'm going to put a little plug in for JOSPT. We've got a paper coming shortly looking at hamstring injury rehabilitation programs and how much detail is reported in the studies and would that allow you. So it's a scoping review looking at lots of different studies and the detail that's reported and how much of that detail would there would allow you to reproduce that intervention in your clinical practice. And I'm sad to report that there's just not a lot of good reporting out there. So that's another thing that researchers can do, relatively simple thing that we as researchers can do to help folks in the clinic. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that that's also one of you know, one of the issues, one of the challenges, if you will, with translation, right? Because it, just a little while ago, I was talking about, you know, specific tailoring of interventions for individual patients. You know, even if we do follow those interventions, at the other side of our mouth, we're saying, well, this is kind of the scaffolding, if you will, but we're also promoting the tailoring for individual patients. So I get it. I understand it is a challenge in terms of designing studies and, you know, increasing the internal validity but also balancing the external validity. I, I will tell you, I think because of the unique position I have, you know, kind of being affiliated with an academic institution, but also a health system, I think a lot of the, the things that I've been involved with over the past years, pro- probably from the beginning of, of um, my research experience, has really been tailored more towards the external validity and the, um, you know, limiting the number of barriers experienced by the clinicians and and the folks in the clinic. Most of the stuff we do now is taking place during routine clinical practice. Now, Jason, I'm going to give you all of the power for the day. So if you were boss of the world for a day, that you can only have that for a day, so calm down. <laughs> what is the first thing that you would change to make life easier for clinicians and patients to work together to achieve best outcomes? Okay, so I, I, I'm you know, I'm not going to give you one answer, Claire, right? I have to get, I have a, a couple answers I have to give you just to make sure I cover all my bases. Um, the one I think that's all right, 24 hours is you can fit lots in 24 hours. I think the one is uh, something that I mentioned already. I, I think having everybody um, understand that a certain degree of standardization is okay, it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's not a cookbook, but provide the reasons for why a certain degree of standardization is necessary, is needed. And I talked about some of those things earlier. I think the second thing is also related to something I talked about earlier. I think training our students, training our entry-level clinicians, and even some of our clinicians who have been in practice for a while, is providing training for those folks to, to understand how to communicate better, more efficiently with their patients But then here's the important thing. This isn't above and beyond what they're doing now, teaching them how to efficiently do it. So the example that I always fall back on is there's certain things we're doing in the clinic already, right? We could use, let's say, for example, responses to patient reported outcome measures and use them as a a method to engage our patients in communication. I think if it's not presented that way, a lot of times people perceive it to be, you're just asking me to do something above and beyond what I'm doing already. And 
what did we talk about earlier? What's the, what's the greatest barrier for everything? It's, it's always time. So I think how we go about presenting that, those, those were the two main things I think I would, because let's face it, um, those, are no, those, are, those are still challenging tasks. So break down the time barrier and then upskill folks in their communication. Yes. And I, you're, as you're stating them back, I'm going to tie it all together. And I'm going to say, I think as a profession, explore opportunities for shared decision-making. I know there's some overlap for everything that, that we said, you know, over the, over the past couple of minutes, but I think in incorporating the patients, right. Incorporating that third pillar into the decisions that are made, maybe it's a type of exercise, right. Cause that's a decision that could be made or another type of intervention. I think in Pat, right. We talked about empowering the clinicians. What about empowering the patients for the decisions? So I think those three things collectively, and hopefully you can see there is overlap with them. Jason, that sounds like a really good agenda for your day as boss of the world. Thank you for challenging us to particularly engage with our patients more and really reminding us to centre our patients. I know that folks are doing this, but it's always nice to have that reminder. And thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thank you again, Claire. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.